section nine of the unknown life of jesus christ this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. read for you by chiquito crasto the unknown life of jesus christ by nicholas notovich translated by j h connelly and l landsberg resume part two in his sermons jesus not only censured the system by which man was robbed of his right to be considered as a human being while an ape or a piece of marble or metal was paid divine worship but he attacked the very life of brahmanism its system of gods its doctrine and its trimurti trinity the angular stone of this religion but a brahma is represented with three faces on a single head this is the trimurti trinity composed of brahma creator vishnu conservator and shiva destroyer here is the origin of the trimurti in the beginning para brahma created the waters and threw into them the seed of procreation which transformed itself into a brilliant egg wherein brahma's image was reflected millions of years had passed when brahma split the egg in two halves of which the upper one became the heaven the lower one the earth then brahma descended to the earth under the shape of a child established himself upon a lotus flower absorbed himself in his own contemplation and put to himself the question who will attend to the conservation of what i have created i came the answer from his mouth under the appearance of a flame and brahma gave to this word the name vishnu that is to say he who preserves then brahma divided his being into two halves the one male the other female the active and the passive principles the union of which produced shiva the destroyer these are the attributes of the trimurti brahma creative principle vishnu preservative wisdom shiva destructive wrath of justice brahma is the substance from which everything was made vishnu space wherein everything lives and shiva time that annihilates all things brahma is the face which vivifies all vishnu the water which sustains the forces of the creatures shiva the fire which breaks the bond that unites all objects brahma is the past vishnu the present shiva the future each part of the trimurti possesses moreover a wife the wife of brahma is saraswati goddess of wisdom that of vishnu lakshmi goddess of virtue and shiva's spouse is kali goddess of death the universal destroyer of this last union were born ganesha the elephant-headed god of wisdom and indra the god of the firmament both chiefs of inferior divinities the number of which if all the objects of adoration of the hindus be included amounts to three hundred millions vishnu has descended eight times upon the earth incarnating in a fish in order to save the vedas from the deluge in a tortoise a dwarf a wild boar a lion in ram a king's son in krishna and in buddha he will come a ninth time under the form of a rider mounted on a white horse in order to destroy death and sin 
Jesus denied the existence of all these hierarchic absurdities of gods which darken the great principle of monotheism. When the Brahmins saw that Jesus, who, instead of becoming one of their party as they had hoped, turned out to be their adversary, and that the people began to embrace his doctrine, they resolved to kill him. But his servants, who were greatly attached to him, forewarned him of the threatening danger, and he took refuge in the mountains of Nepal. At this epoch, Buddhism had taken deep root in this country. It was a kind of schism, remarkable by its moral principles and ideas on the nature of the divinity, ideas which brought men closer to nature and to one another. Sakyamuni, the founder of this sect, was born 1500 years before Jesus Christ at Kapila, the capital of his father's kingdom near Nepal in the Himalay. He belonged to the race of the Gotamides and to the ancient family of the Sakyas. From his infancy, he evinced a lively interest in religion and, contrary to his father's wishes, leaving his palace with all its luxury, began at once to preach against the Brahmins for the purification of their doctrines. He died at Kochinagara, surrounded by many faithful disciples. His body was burned, and his ashes, divided into several parts, were distributed between the cities which, on account of his new doctrine, had renounced Brahmanism. According to the Buddhistic doctrine, the Creator reposes normally in a state of perfect inaction, which is disturbed by nothing and which he only leaves at certain destiny-determined epochs in order to create terrestrial buddhas. To this end, the spirit disengages itself from the sovereign creator, incarnates in a buddha, and stays for some time on the earth, and he creates bodhisattvas, masters, whose mission it is to preach the divine word and to found new churches of believers to whom they will give laws, and for whom they will institute a new religious order according to the traditions of Buddhism. A terrestrial Buddha is, in a certain way, a reflection of the sovereign creative Buddha, with whom he unites after the termination of his terrestrial existence. In like manner do the Bodhisattvas, as a reward for their labors and the privations they undergo, receive eternal bliss and enjoy a rest which nothing can disturb. Jesus adjourned six years among the Buddhists, where he found the principle of monotheism still pure. Arrived at the age of twenty-six years, he remembered his fatherland, which was then oppressed by a foreign yoke. On his way homeward, he preached against idol worship, human sacrifice, and other errors of faith, admonishing the people to recognize and adore God, the Father of all beings, to whom all are alike dear, the master as well as the slave, for they are all his children, to whom he has given this beautiful universe for a common heritage. The sermons of Jesus often made a profound impression upon the peoples among whom he came, and he was exposed to all sorts of dangers provoked by the clergy, but was saved by the very idolaters who, only the preceding day, had offered their children as sacrifices to their idols. While passing through Persia, Jesus almost caused a revolution among the adorers of Zoroaster's doctrine. Nevertheless, the priests refrained from killing him out of fear of the people's vengeance. They resorted to artifice and led him out of town at night with the hope that he might be devoured by wild beasts. Jesus escaped this peril and arrived safe and sound in the country of Israel. 
it must be remarked here that the orientals amidst their sometimes so picturesque misery and in the ocean of deprivation in which they slumber always have under the influence of their priests and teachers a pronounced inclination for learning and understand easily good common-sense explications it happened to me more than once that by using simple words of truth i appealed to the conscience of a thief or some otherwise intractable person these people moved by a sentiment of innate honesty which the clergy for personal reasons of their own tried by all means to stifle soon became again very honest and had only contempt for those who had abused their confidence by the virtue of a mere word of truth the whole of india with its three hundred million of idols could be made a vast christian country but this beautiful project would no doubt be antagonized by certain christians who similar to those priests of whom i have spoken before speculate upon the ignorance of the people who make themselves rich according to saint luke jesus was about thirty years of age when he began preaching to the israelites according to the buddhistic chroniclers jesus's teachings in judea began in his twenty-ninth year all his sermons which are not mentioned by the evangelists but have been preserved by the buddhists are remarkable for their character of divine grandeur the fame of the new prophet spread rapidly in the country and jerusalem awaited with impatience his arrival when he came near the holy city its inhabitants went out to meet him and led him in triumph to the temple all of which is in agreement with christian tradition the chiefs and elders who heard him were filled with admiration for his servants and were happy to see the beneficent impression which his words exercised among the populace all these remarkable sermons of jesus are full of sublime sentiments pilate the governor of the country however did not look upon the matter in the same light eager agents notified him that jesus announced the near coming of a new kingdom the re-establishment of the throne of israel and that he suffered himself to be called the son of god sent to bring back courage in israel for he the king of judea would soon ascend the throne of his ancestors i do not propose attributing to jesus the role of a revolutionary but it seems to me very probable that jesus wrought up the people with a view to re-establish the throne to which he had a just claim divinely inspired and at the same time convinced of the legitimacy of his pretensions jesus preached the spiritual union of the people in order that a political union might result pilate who felt alarmed over these rumors called together the priests and the elders of the people and ordered them to interdict jesus from preaching in public and even to condemn him in the temple under the charge of apostasy this was the best means for pilate to rid himself of a dangerous man whose royal origins he knew and whose popularity was constantly increasing it must be said in this connection that the israelites far from persecuting jesus recognized in him the descendant of the illustrious dynasty of david and made him the object of their secret hopes a fact which is evident from the very gospels which tell that jesus preached freely in the temple in the presence of the elders who could have interdicted him not only the entrance to the temple but also his preachings upon the order of pilate the sanhedrin met and cited jesus to appear before its tribunal as a result of the inquiry the members of the sanhedrin informed pilate that his suspicions were without any foundation whatever that jesus preached a religious and not a political propaganda 
that he was expounding the divine word and that he claimed to have come not to overthrow but to re-establish the laws of moses the buddhistic record does but confirm the sympathy which unquestionably existed between the young preacher jesus and the elders of the people of israel hence their answer we do not judge a just one pilate felt not at all assured and continued seeking an occasion to hail jesus before a new tribunal as regular as the former to this end he caused him to be followed by spies and finally ordered his arrest if we may believe the evangelists it was the pharisees who sought the life of jesus while the buddhistic record most positively declares that pilate alone can be held responsible for his execution this version is evidently much more probable than the account of the evangelists the conquerors of judea could not tolerate the presence of a man who announced to the people a speedy deliverance from their yoke the popularity of jesus having commenced to disturb pilate's mind it is to be supposed that he sent after the young preacher spies with the order to take note of all his words and acts moreover the servants of the roman governor as true agent provocateur endeavoured by means of artful questions put to jesus to draw from him some imprudent words under colour of which pilate might proceed against him if the preachings of jesus had been offensive to the hebrew priests and scribes all they needed to do was simply to command the people not to hear and follow him and to forbid him entrance into the temple but the evangelists tell us that jesus enjoyed great popularity among the israelites and full liberty in the temples where pharisees and scribes discussed with him in order to find a valid excuse for condemning him pilate had him tortured so as to extort from him a confession of high treason but contrary to the rule that the innocent overcome by their pain will confess anything to escape the unendurable agonies inflicted upon them jesus made no admission of guilt pilate seeing that the usual tortures were powerless to accomplish the desired result commanded the executioners to proceed to the last extreme of their diabolic cruelties meaning to compass the death of jesus by the complete exhaustion of his forces jesus however fortifying his endurance by the power of his will and zeal for his righteous cause which was also that of his people and of god was unconquerable by all the refinements of cruelty inflicted upon him by his executioners the infliction of the question upon jesus evoked much feeling among the elders and they resolved to interfere in his behalf formally demanding of pilate that he should be liberated before the passover when their request was denied by pilate they resolved to petition that jesus should be brought to trial before the sanhedrim by whom they did not doubt his acquittal which was ardently desired by the people would be ordained in the eyes of the priests jesus was a saint belonging to the family of david and his unjust detention or what was still more to be dreaded his condemnation would have saddened the celebration of the great national festival of the israelites they therefore prayed pilate that the trial of jesus should take place before the passover and to this he acceded but he ordered that two thieves should be tried at the same time with jesus thinking too in this way minimize in the eyes of the people the importance of the fact that the life of an innocent man was being put in jeopardy before the tribunal and by not allowing jesus to be condemned alone blind the populace to the unjust prearrangement of his condemnation the accusation against jesus was founded upon the depositions of the bribed witnesses 
During the trial, Pilate availed himself of perversions of Jesus's words concerning the heavenly kingdom to sustain the charges made against him. He counted, it seems, upon the effect produced by the answers of Jesus, as well as upon his own authority, to influence the members of the tribunal against examining too minutely the details of the case, and to procure from them the sentence of death for which he intimated his desire. Upon hearing the perfectly natural answer of the judges, that the meaning of the words of Jesus was diametrically opposed to the accusation, and that there was nothing in them to warrant his condemnation, Pilate employed his final resource for prejudicing the trial, viz. the deposition of a purchased traitorous informer. This miserable wretch, who was no doubt Judas, accused Jesus formally of having incited the people to rebellion. Then followed a scene of unsurpassed sublimity. When Judas gave his testimony, Jesus, turning toward him and giving him his blessing, says, Thou wilt find mercy, for what thou hast said did not come out from thine own heart. Then addressing himself to the governor, Why dost thou lower thy dignity, and teach thy inferiors to tell falsehood, when without doing so it is in thy power to condemn an innocent man? Words touching as sublime. Jesus Christ here manifests all the grandeur of his soul by pardoning his betrayer, and he reproaches Pilate with having resorted to such means, unworthy of his dignity, to attain his end. This keen reproach enraged the governor, and caused him to completely forget his position and the prudent policy with which he had meant to evade personal responsibility for the crime he contemplated. He now imperiously demanded the conviction of Jesus and as though he intended to make a display of his power to overawe the judges, ordered the acquittal of the two thieves. The judges, seeing the injustice of Pilate's demand, that they should acquit the malefactors and condemn the innocent Jesus, refused to commit this double crime against their consciences and their laws. But as they could not cope with one who possessed the authority of final judgment, and saw that he was firmly decided to rid himself by whatever means of a man who had fallen under the suspicions of the Roman authorities, they left him to himself pronounce the verdict for which he was so anxious, in order, however, that the people might not suspect them of sharing the responsibility for such unjust judgment, which would not readily have been forgiven. They, in leaving the court, performed the ceremony of washing their hands, symbolizing the affirmation that they were clean of the blood of the innocent Jesus, the beloved of the people. About ten years ago, I read in a German journal, The Fremdenblatt, an article on Judas, wherein the author endeavored to demonstrate that the informer had been the best friend of Jesus. According to him, it was out of love for his master that Judas betrayed him, for he put blind faith in the words of the Savior, who said that his kingdom would arrive after his execution. But after seeing him on the cross, and having waited in vain for the resurrection of Jesus, which he expected to immediately take place, Judas, not able to bear the pain by which his heart was torn, committed suicide by hanging himself. It would be profitless to dwell upon this ingenious product of a fertile imagination. To take up again the accounts of the Gospel and the Buddhistic Chronicle, it is very possible that the bribed informer was really Judas, although the Buddhistic version is silent on this point. As to the pangs of conscience, which are said to have impelled the informer to suicide, I must say I give no credence to them. 
a man capable of committing so vile and cowardly an action as that of making an infamously false accusation against his friend and this not out of a spirit of jealousy or for revenge but to gain a handful of shekels such a man is from the psychic point of view of very little worth he ignores honesty and conscience and pangs of remorse are unknown to him it is presumable that the governor treated him as is sometimes done in our days when it is deemed desirable to effectually conceal state secrets known to men of his kind and presumably unsafe in their keeping judas probably was simply hanged by pilate's order to prevent the possibility of his some day revealing that the plot of which jesus was a victim had been inspired by the authorities on the day of the execution a numerous detachment of roman soldiers was placed around the cross to guard against any attempt by the populace for the delivery of him who was the object of their veneration in this occurrence pilate gave proof of his extraordinary firmness and resolution but though owing to the precautions taken by the governor the anticipated revolt did not occur he could not prevent the people after the execution mourning the ruin of their hopes which were destroyed together with the last scion of the race of david all the people went to worship at jesus's grave although we have no precise information concerning the occurrences of the first few days following the passion we could by some probable conjectures reconstruct the scenes which must have taken place it stands to reason that the roman caesar's clever lieutenant when he saw that christ's grave became the centre of universal lamentations and the subject of national grief and feared that the memory of the righteous victim might excite the discontent of the people and raise the whole country against the foreigner's rule should have employed any effective means for the removal of this rallying point the mortal remains of jesus pilate began by having the body buried for three days the soldiers who were stationed on guard at the grave were exposed to all kinds of insults and injuries on the part of the people who defying the danger came in multitudes to mourn the great martyr then pilate ordered his soldiers to remove the body at night and to bury it clandestinely in some other place leaving the first grave open and the guard withdrawn from it so that the people could see that jesus had disappeared but pilate missed his end for when on the following morning the hebrews did not find the corpse of their master in the sepulchre the superstitious and miracle accepting among them thought that he had been resurrected how did this legend take root we cannot say possibly it existed for a long time in a latin state and at the beginning spread only among the common people perhaps the ecclesiastic authorities of the hebrews looked with indulgence upon this innocent belief which gave to the oppressed a shadow of revenge on their oppressors however it be the day when the legend of the resurrection finally became known to all there was no one to be found strong enough to demonstrate the impossibility of such an occurrence concerning this resurrection it must be remarked that according to the buddhists the soul of the just isa was united with the eternal being while the evangelists insist upon the ascension of the body it seems to me however that the evangelists and the apostles have done very well to give the description of the resurrection which they have agreed upon for if they had not done so that is if the miracle had been given a less material character their preaching would not have had in the eyes of the nations to whom it was presented that divine authority that avowedly supernatural character which has clothed christianity 
until our time as the only religion capable of elevating the human race to a state of sublime enthusiasm suppressing its savage instincts and bringing it nearer to the grand and simple nature which god has bestowed they say upon that feeble dwarf called man end of resume part two read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama end of the unknown life of jesus christ by nicholas notovich translated by j h connolly and l landsberg